0: The Joan and Bill Hank Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University Chicago is proud to support Jesuitical. Hank Center events for this fall include the Poets of Presence Conference, featuring renowned poet Christian Wyman, a dialogue with the Sant'Egidio founder, Dr. Marco Impagliazzo, and their annual Tejard Lecture, given by Father Patty Gilger. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu/ccih. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from Americ Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great
1: to be with you, Ashley.
0: And again, by Sebastian Gomes.
1: Great to be with you, Ashley. Although, I really wish I was with my wife today. It's four years, four years' anniversary today. so Aww, uh, congratulations. Congrats. Yeah, so congrats to us. Uh, happy anniversary, Amanda. We'll celebrate soon.
2: And we're praying for you here from Rome. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. So
1: Congratulations, guys. Yeah, we got a great show on this anniversary special. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, we were joined a couple days ago by Emil Secuda. She is the secretary of the Pontifical Commission for Latin America and is, I believe, the highest ranking lay woman working at the Vatican today.
1: Yeah, so huge deal. Um, she's an expert in Catholic social teaching in Latin America, and Pope Francis has called her a hot pepper.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she is someone who is not afraid to speak her mind. She's she's from Argentina. She says this is typical of women from Argentina. So the Pope, she has the trust of the Pope. She's really the person he brought and like handpicked to bring Catholic social teaching to the heart of the Vatican. So we talked to her about what came out of the synodal process in Latin America, what it's like to work at the Vatican. Vatican and much more
1: yeah so stay tuned for that and she did suggest a drink for us in typical Argentine fashion she recommended that we have a Malbec which I love a Malbec as much as anyone I say Malbec
2: you say Malbec is
1: that because of your wine I don't know certification (laughs) I could be putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable (laughs) um it could be a Canadian thing too That's true. That's Um, true. but Italy is great for finding Italian wine Maybe some European wines, but we were not able to sort of quickly find a Malbec in our neighborhood. So
0: when we get home, yeah, when we get home,
1: we're (laughs) going to have a great Malbec and uh, cheers to Dr. Emil Sekuda.
0: And in Signs of the Times, we're going to talk about what's happening at the Synod this week and also about what Pope Francis has said about the ongoing violence in Israel and Palestine. But before we get to all of that, we have a few words about our sponsors this week.
1: (laughs) Saints for Sinners offers hundreds of saint medallions, all beautifully hand-painted in New Orleans. Each medal is unique, and there's a saint for everyone, and anyone. For animal lovers, for musicians, for mothers, for daughters, those special in our lives.
0: These saint medals are all wearable and make great gifts for any occasion. The saints offer guidance, perspective, comfort, and most of all, hope. These one-of-a-kind, hand-painted saint medals are tiny tokens of that hope.
1: Who's your favorite saint? Take the quiz and find your favorite saint at saintsforsinners.com. Imported from Italy, hand-painted in New Orleans. Visit saintsforsinners.com and take the quiz.
0: As you all know, we're here in Rome covering the Synod on Synodality, and already we're seeing that this is going to have huge implications for the church around the world. And so there is no better time to tell you about an upcoming conference at the University of San Diego that will explore what it means to be a Catholic college or university today.
1: It's called Lighting the Way Forward, and it's going to take a look at a lot of timely topics like climate change, structural racism, polarization, lack of trust in institutions. They're asking really honest questions that affect us all, not dissimilar to what the Synod is doing here in Rome.
0: The conference will take place from January 11th to the 13th in 2024, and the speaker lineup is amazing. Cardinal McElroy, a frequent writer in America, a friend of the podcast, and someone who is here in Rome for the Synod will be there along with Vincentian Father Dennis Holtschreider, who is the president of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and our friend and colleague Gloria Purvis, the host of the Gloria Purvis podcast.
1: So for a complete lineup, and more importantly, to register for the Lighting the Way conference, make sure to visit their website at sandiego.edu slash lighting. That's sandiego.edu slash L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G.
0: And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic News of the Week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
1: So update on where the Synod is, what's happening. So this week, the delegates moved into this next module of discussion. So the topic broadly is communion. But what that means sort of more granularly, there's a bunch of different questions and topics being discussed. Um, According to the Synod's working document, it's things like the poor, the environment, welcoming the marginalized, including women and LGBT Catholics, ecumenical dialogue, and a lot more.
0: Yeah, so this is really the meat of what's happening at the Synod. The first module on synodality was more forming people to have these conversations, and now they're getting to the topics that people really are here to discuss.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we've gone to a couple press briefings. I asked my first that was
0: very question
1: at a press conference before. felt really intense. I was shaking in my boots, so <laughs> to speak. And one of those included Cardinal Tobin, who talked about the church being open.
0: And this is the Archbishop of Newark, New Jersey. That's
1: correct. He said, and I quote, I think the real beauty of our Catholic Church is clear when the doors are open and welcoming. And it's my hope that the Synod can help us do that in an even more significant way.
0: But the Synod participants don't just have to sit in the audience hall all month, though there is a whole lot of that. They have very long working days. But today they're going on a pilgrimage to the catacombs of St. Sebastian and St. Callistus.
1: Yeah. One of the things that's come out of this is it sounds like the delegates have found a lot of meaning in sort of the community that they've been able to form together. It started with a retreat outside of Rome. And so this pilgrimage is hopefully going to be a continuation of that and also a callback to, I don't know what, what the symbolism of going to the catacombs (laughs) is. It's It's always
0: good to remember death. (laughs) That's
1: true, I guess. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully that goes super well. We're going to try to tag along ourselves. So we will keep you updated on that pilgrimage to the catacombs. What's our next story, Ashley?
0: So switching from what's happening here in Rome to some of the bigger stories that I'm sure all of our listeners are paying attention to, we wanted to talk about what the Catholic Church, the Pope, has said about the attack by Hamas on Israel last Saturday. So we're recording this Thursday morning. Since the Saturday terrorist attack started, 1,200 Israelis have been killed, mostly civilians. 1,100 have been killed in airstrikes in Gaza, also many, many civilians there. There are still over 100 hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza, and Hamas has pledged to kill one hostage for every airstrike by Israel in a residential area that happens without warning.
1: Yeah, so Pope Francis first addressed this during his Sunday Angelus, and I'm going to quote here in full because words are important, especially in this segment. Quote, terrorism and extremism do not help reach a solution to the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, but fuel hatred, violence, revenge, and only cause each other to suffer. The Middle East does not need war, but peace, a peace built on dialogue and the courage of fraternity
0: and the patriarchs and heads of churches in Jerusalem that's an ecumenical group of church leaders there also put out a statement they said quote we unequivocally condemn any acts that target civilians regardless of their nationality ethnicity or faith and you might notice that like pope francis's words they don't say Hamas specifically, and the lack of a clear condemnation of Hamas in particular uh, did not go unnoticed by people in Israel.
1: No. So Israel's embassy to the Holy See said in a written statement on October 9th, so that's Monday, that the massacre is, quote, a catastrophe of biblical dimensions condemning the death of entire families and children who were executed in cold blood by Hamas and Islamic jihad militants. For this reason, they said, quote, it was extremely disappointing and frustrating to read the text published by the patriarchs and heads of churches in Jerusalem from October 7th, which the embassy said demonstrates, quote, immoral linguistic ambiguity by not being clear about what happened, who were the aggressors and who were the victims.
0: Right. And so it's not the end of the story. The Pope spoke on this again on Wednesday during his general audience. And again, we'll quote that in full. He said, I ask that the hostages be released immediately immediately. It is the right of those who are attacked to defend themselves, but I am very concerned about the total siege under which the Palestinians are living in Gaza, where there have also been many innocent victims.
1: So Raphael Schutz, who's served as Israel's ambassador to the Holy See since 2021, told the outlet Crux that the Pope's statements, in a way, fills a vacuum I felt needed to be filled in recent days, he said, especially recognizing the right of Israel to self-defense, end quote. And he called the Pope's words sufficient in the eyes of the government.
0: Yeah, so there's definitely, in the eyes of Israel, some progress made in the Vatican's response, but he did also talk again about the need for moral clarity and defended Israel's conduct since the attack.
1: Yeah, so we obviously join in the Holy Father's words of lamentation for everything that's happened, and we're also praying for peace as the situation develops further. We wanted to point you to a couple resources in case you want to go deeper into this. Our friends at Unorthodox just released a special episode listening to voices from israel right now so you can find that search unorthodox wherever you're listening to this podcast and we also wanted to remind you we have a great interview with father david neuhaus who is an israeli jesuit who has worked for peace in that region for a long time we interviewed him in 2021 when conflicts were flaring up again this this is obviously a different chapter in that conflict but our conversation with father david did sort of widen the scope a little bit and look at some of the history and context surrounding that region so those are two resources to point to.
0: Now stick around for our conversation with Emil Seda. Joining us in Rome is Emil Saikuda. Dr. Emil Se is the secretary of the Pontifical Commission for Latin America. Welcome to Jesuitical.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is very exciting for us. We are not normally in Rome, but you and I share a special connection also to my alma mater, Loyola University Chicago, Chicago, um, which I know you've been a visiting professor at. So Chicago is probably the best place where we could have done this, but Rome is not so bad either. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I love Chicago.
0: <laughs> so... We want to talk to you about synodality and your work in theology, but first, we didn't want to miss the chance to ask you about Pope Francis. You're from Argentina. You studied theology there while he was archbishop. So can you take us back to his election? Were you as surprised as the rest of the world when he was elected pope?
3: Of course, was a big surprise. <laughs> I remember the moment was in the morning in, in Argentina, and I was uh, in my room with my two kids. And when we listen, the name, I can't understand on the first. What is it? My, my son said, it's Jorge Mario Bergoglio. That was a big surprise.
0: Yeah. And did you know him at that point?
3: No. Well, I know him because he was the counselor of the university. I was professor there. But in the past, we didn't work together.
0: In the United States, the Jesuits I know at the time were kind of nervous about Bergoglio, he had a reputation for being kind of strict and conservative. Was that your view of him at the time?
3: Well, at the time, it's not my view; it's a view of the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, surprise me—is somebody around the world think that Bergoglio is conservative? Really
1: <laughs> interesting. Now you have a book called "Reading Francis." Is there anything that's happened over the past ten years in Pope Francis's papacy that's really surprised you?
3: Well, surprise me that he can engage the young people who was Catholics but was outside the church. Mm. Some people think we are losing people from the church with this new uh, mode to understand uh, evangelization. But no, in my opinion, all the Catholics, all the Baptist people who was outside the church, they are working at the universities, uh, at the companies, union workers. Political parties, when Pope Francis speak against the system, when Pope Francis start to speak about a new logic in the economy, in the common house, all that people they are coming to the church again.
1: So it's Pope Francis speaking boldly about some social justice issues that is making younger people more coming back to. The Catholic Church in, in Latin America, you think? Sure,
3: sure. Not only in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. Now, from Latin America, we are in contact with young people, especially universities, students around the world, and they support Pope Francis, not only because he's the Pope, but in this case, uh, they love his mode to express the magisterium because they feel so close of them.
0: Well, so he's not an academic, but you are. And I'm guessing that's why he wanted to bring you to the Vatican. So this is what your work focuses on, you know, workers, populism, social justice. So what is it like to one get called to the Vatican, but to see a papacy really embrace the work that you've been doing for decades?
3: My background as theologian, my PhD, Is in moral theology, focusing on social problems, economic problems, workers. And in my opinion, Pope Francis called me to move that in our continents. That is my challenge.
1: You know, in maybe my background, I used to think moral theology dealt more with individual problems, not societal problems. Is that changed or is that a different context or? Good question. It's easy to
3: translate from Spanish to English or other language. But it's not easy to translate the culture. For example, the idea of el pueblo and the people is absolutely different because the people is a plural. It's one plus one plus one. But the people, el pueblo, is one subject. So the decision is a communitarian decision. It's the people, the people together Does one soul, say Pope Francis, who Mm. take the decision. And this is not new. This is the Second Vatican Council. And in my opinion, it's a special topic in this synodality. Who take the decision? One person or the people like El Pueblo? So social justice, for example, at the moment means different things in Latin America than in United States. In United States, social justice today is uh, in relationship with genders or Pope Francis called ideological problems or, no, it, from the right and from the left. But in Latin America, social justice is exactly poor migrants, workers, it's not in relationship. So it's, it's not easy to translate the cultural concept. Mm. And that is my work as theologian.
0: Yeah. So you've worked in the United States. And when you were talking about El Pueblo and then the people being one plus one plus one, we are rather individualistic in the United States. So when you were working there, how did you try to translate that?
3: Well, maybe in Latin America, we are individual too, of Mm. course. But the idea is to pay attention to the language because the culture is through the language. And it's not to do an imposition in other contexts, but to try to understand, because if we have common problems, for example, migrants in United States, the problem is the United States receive millions of persons. In Latin America, the people move to there. So we must to found a solution together. So it's important to start to build together. The same categories, but together in synodality. Synodality is a deep concept. So this is a different because we have a poll from Latin America, but maybe in the future we we'll have a pope from Asia or Africa or United States. And God maybe... forbid. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the problem will be the same. And the synodality is no, is this because now when we speak about synodality, it's around the same topics. No, the topics that are star now, but This is a synodality problem.
1: Do you think that the church in Latin America is ahead of the United States or the rest of the world in terms of understanding synodality in the Second Vatican Council?
3: No, no, no. It's different context. When Pope Francis, Pope Francis used short sentence, and our work is to explain that. For example, when he said, the solution is the unity in the difference. This is the contrary of the totalitalisms, because totalitalism is the unity to kill the difference. Mm. But in this case, it's different. United States and Latin America, or or North America, United States and Canada, and Latin America is absolutely different because the relationship in the production system, economy system, is absolutely different. The government and the style of democracy are absolutely different. We had 200 dictatorships in a hundred years in Latin America. And in United States, you have a civil war without interrupting democracy, for example. So we are different, but we must get the unity to work together to present a solution or one alternative to the biggest problem in the 21st century, it's migration. Migration, the solution is how to change this economic system.
0: In, in your work as secretary for the Pontifical Commission for Latin America, how are you and the Vatican trying to do that work?
3: Well, the commission, my commission, the commission where I work, it's not my commission, I work there, <laughs> I press my service there, is a commission. It's not a little Vatican. Latin America, as you know, is the only continent that has a commission. That was because in the past, liberation theology was a big problem. So this commission was to control that. Created to keep an eye and
1: watch the liberation theologians.
3: Exactly. But that was in the past. Now with Pope Francis, the function of Latin American commission is to keep the life in Latin America and uh, in relationship with other dicasteries. For example, in my case, I am working with students at universities, so it's in connection with the Dicastery of Education and Culture. But now, we had an activity about the common home, and the activity was in relationship with the Dicastery of Human Development. So, this is how to think a solution from Latin America.
0: Of course... That's a a complete opposite of why it was created, no? Now it wants Latin American theology and experience to affect every part of the church.
3: Depends. Depends. Because in that times when you said ideology, it means communisms. But the ideology now is not communisms. The ideology is neoliberalism, extractivism. So maybe it's the same, but in a different different way, no? How to preserve the life in our continents, against ideologies. But we must to be clear what it means in the actuality. And the answer is in Laudato Si and Laudato Deum, a system who is going to, to kill the life in the earth. It's an economical system that has a lot of fundamental concept to support this, is ideology.
1: One big ideology today is populism around the world. How does Pope Francis understand that?
3: Well, one thing is what the public opinion understands about populism. And other things is what the political theory authors write about Mm populism. Populism is not an ideologia. It's not an idea. Populism is a mode to act. It's a style. It's a style to do Something like democracy, but it's not exactly democracy. Our democracy in Latin America sometimes is only to vote each two or four years, but that is not real democracy. The real democracy is participate, for example, in the economical decision. If you are a candidate in a country in Latin America, poorest country with a big external debt, you say, no, if you vote me. Day before the election, we we can go to take vacation in Miami or that is not true. (laughs) That this is populism under there is an ideology. And the ideology that supports and involves people in corruption is the ideology of to take all the natural wealth from Latin America, convert this in rent, and then put aside in divisas. Strange.
1: So you're saying that the ideology behind that is economic in that people will take the natural resources from Latin America, convert that into to money, to capital, and then move that capital from Latin America. Correct? Exactly. That is the cause of
3: corruption, migration, discarded. That is the real cause. And why this continued? Because we have a big ideology. Populism is a consequence. It's not an ideology. Because in Latin America, we have... Conservative governments or popular governments. Mm. So for Latin America, populismo in the past was a good word, was the mode to affirm, yes, we are popular. We are populisms. We love populisms, but not populisms in the sense that now in the 21st century, we understand because now populisms is synonymous of corruption. Mm. In, the sense in the
0: U.S., with
3: not only the people called populists to Pope Francis mm-hmm. and to Trump, yeah. Christina, yeah. Kirchner, Lula, everybody that I don't like is populist. <laughs> so we must to be clear. Sometimes they present an idea, an ideology as theology. In that case, we have theological politics.
1: want to shift a little bit to the Synod that's happening right now in Rome and backing up a little bit. When we were preparing to come, we wanted to read all of the continental documents that came, but the one from Latin America was the only one that didn't have an English translation. So we were not able to read that one, but we figured maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the process was like, maybe for young people in particular, about what things were coming up during the, the Synod discussions. It's interesting to understand that from each continent,
3: the proposal was different because the context is different. And in Latin America, the preoccupation was about who take the decision, who take the decision. It's important because they are fighting for participation, but not participation in the church only. They need to participate in social decisions, economical decisions, political decisions. Eighty percent of the people are Catholics no? in Latin America. Maybe not all they, of sure, not all them are around the, the parish, but it's incredible that you take a taxi in Latin America and the driver, no, and social encyclical. Mm. <laughs> On the contrary, in the United States, I am a professor there. My students never read directly an encyclical. They yeah. read the compendium, the Magisterium of the Social Teaching from the Vatican web, and that compendium finished in John Paul II. We have not the actualization
1: of Benedicto, neither Pope Francis. So. I don't even know if they read the compendium. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I was, when I was a college student, I, I arrived, I had never read any of the compendium. So that was all, all new for me in the United States. But you're saying in Latin America... A taxi driver has read the encyclical. Yes,
3: this is similar in the United States. In my opinion, Argentina has a lot of characteristics similar with the United States. Why? Because the workers in United States and in Argentina was organized by the Catholic Church in the 19th century. Hmm. This is interesting because it was not the PC, the Partido Comunista, it was the church. So the workers are the first instructor. In social doctrine in Latin America, the people know the social doctrine in the in the unions. As you know, in the 60s, there was a big discussion around the world if social justice was a dog of the evangelical predication or constitutive part. And the conclusion was the social problems or the fight for social justice. It's not an accident in the predication. It's a constitutive part of that. It's not
1: some byproduct of faith. It's a fundamental part of faith.
3: Exactly. So in Latin America, if you are an active Catholic, you work in the, we call, comunidad organizada. In United States, it's organizing community, but it's a little different. It's not necessary to start to teach them what the social doctrine said from Rerum Novarum to the last one, no? The Fratelli tutti. And this is important. It's different in the United States, but it's different in Europe. And in this it's better. No, it's not better. It's a different context. Now, Pope Francis tried to put us together to build a good life in our country, all the Americas. And it's not easy to understand between us because when you said people, And I say, el pueblo is Mm different.
0: You mentioned that in the synod discussions that that participation, decision-making came up, which I assume means that people aren't completely satisfied with their level of participation in the church and how decisions are made. So what were some of the concrete hopes for how this synod could change decision-making in the church that came out of Latin America?
3: Well, as in the United States, the dominant concept was about uh, LGBT or... Welcoming. Inclusion. Women, right, inclusion. In Latin America, a social problem is inclusion. But inclusion in the political decision, in the social decision. And they think the church has an important role there, because in the past it was like that. But when I was here in Europe, the discussion was around theological concept. And You can see, because it's on the web, the people who was there was theologians. In Latin America, no, was pastors, social activists, um, academics. So it's different. And this is the wealth of the synod, because I hope now inside the synod, they are putting on the table this difference, no? It's a big problem for us, gender or inclusion or diversity, in Latin America, of course, it's a topic,
1: but it's not the central topic, in my opinion. Are you hopeful that all these different groups and interests from around the world will be able to work together? Yes,
3: because I believe in the Holy Spirit, of course. It's, Pope Francis said all the time, this is not a parliament. This is the church. So I am sure that our synodal fathers and mothers are going to arrive at a good solution. It's not a solution. Pope Francis don't like a conclusive document. It's start a process, to take the practice, to listen between us, to listen different positions. We must understand that Pope Francis is from Argentina. And in Argentina, like in Brazil and United States, we have one important thing that other countries in Latin America, they have not, is the contrato colectivo de trabajo. That is the real social dialogue, when people from different positions must to be seated at the same table to arrive at a solution. And for that, you must listen to the other and renounce of some of your interests. If not, it's impossible continue working together, and next year again, and next year again, because we are in the history and the things
0: change. So I know you said that in Latin America, things like gender and inclusion weren't the top priorities, but I can say coming from the U.S. context, a lot of people want to see more women in leadership positions at the Vatican. So when someone like you does become the highest-ranking lay female at the Vatican, it makes slashes and gets people's hopes up in the United States. So I do want to ask about your work there, what it's been like to work and what from the outside is seen as a very male-dominated and clerical institution. In Latin
3: America, the problem is the feminicidio.
0: No, so femicide.
3: Exactly. That is a problem. Of course the woman is a problem. The church, and Pope Francis is doing that, recognize the woman in an important place to show a good example to the society. Because in my continents, we the women are dying every day, thousands of them. So it's important the woman it's So seeing
0: you th- at the Vatican is a message that yes, yes the woman it's to is show valued. Show it's a symbolic
3: decision because I am a woman at the Vatican, but I am not over them, neither them over me. It's the same when I worked in the past in the university. Another male dominated institution traditionally. And I found uh, the same difference like in universities. How many women are president at the universities in the world? Public or religious universities? Few of them. Maybe the same proportion that. Women work at the Vatican. Hmm. Maybe the same proportion, no? It's important that the other Cardinals are our friends. Respect us. We work together. Really, I have no problem. The, the fantasy that, wow, a woman at the Vatican. No. This is our job. And we work together. We respect between us. We have no problems here. I insist. We must speak about women at the Vatican, but also speak about the trajectory of those women here, because it's not only to put the women because we need women in a panel or in an office, no? Pope Francis put women with the, I am not speaking about myself, but you can see the other women who work here.
1: They're experts. Exactly.
3: They're very qualified. It's not only for to put the women here.
1: Now. Pope Francis has called you a hot pepper in the Vatican and and also that, you know, being small, but you pack a big punch. So do you feel like you are in any ways like changing things at the Vatican or maybe they're not used to your personality or someone from the outside world coming in with your credentials that you do?
3: I think, well, it was was nice to listen to that for me, no? (laughs) (laughs) I am a lay woman. That is different, no? I am not a nun. I am a lay woman. I have two boys. For me, our kids, but are men, I worked at the university with young people for more than 30 years. So, in my background, I have the practice to organize connections between different universities, between different countries, between different continents, and between different parts of the society. I did that for more than 30 years. So, it's impossible to be here quiet, sitting <laughs> in a desk. <laughs> That's not for me. When Pope Francis called me here, he knows very well that I tried to say that that for three months. At the four <laughs> months, I started. Yeah, you
0: don't strike me as someone who's going to hold back your opinion, and I imagine Pope Francis appreciates that. He's told people to speak boldly, so I'm sure I'm sure he welcomes <laughs> welcomes that with you. Um, thank you so much for taking so much time to talk with us. We do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, and that is if you could canonize. One person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why?
3: Juan Carlos Escanone. Okay. He passed away two years ago. He was a Jesuit from Argentina. He was professor of Paul Francis. He was one of the founders of liberation philosophy. I worked with him for many years and when Pope Francis became Paul Francis we start to travel together around the world doing the translation between theology of the people and the rest of theology to say, this is not theology of the people. This is the theology. Mm. This is the theology. That was hard work in Germany, in the United States, in different Mm. countries. And when he passed away two years ago, Pope Francis called me to work here at the Vatican.
1: Wow. Well, I'm glad you picked up the phone and that you're not staying behind your desk. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate all the work you're doing.
3: Thank you so much for your service to the church.
1: All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Just a quick update, wanna thank new Patreon supporters who have signed up in the last week. Huge shout out to Lauren Early. Oreo Mesquita, and Mary Ellen Braybeck. Thank you so much. They've got access to our first bonus episode here from the Synod on Synodality. We're going to be dropping more while we're here. We're about to record one about the Vatican media environment. It's been a little tough, to say the least, to work around the Pope's wishes that the Synod delegates fast from public words. So we've been trying to like discern if that's a good thing. Do we agree with the Pope? To what extent? So if you want to hear our thoughts on that, tune in. And thank you so much. If you want to join those supporters on Patreon, you can sign up at patreon.com america media.
0: And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And we're going to bring Sebastian back on for this segment of the show. And today we wanted to talk about what was a pretty unique experience of Mass for me. We went to Mass at the Caravita community, which is not actually a parish. It's a group of Catholics in Rome who use a chapel that belongs to the Jesuits near the Church of St. Ignatius here. And so we went to mass there on Sunday. And it's kind of a hub for English-speaking Catholic journalists here. So I'm wondering, what were your guys' experience like?
1: So my background here is when I was studying abroad in Rome 10 years ago now, I found it really hard to exist as just like a normal Catholic here to have any kind of spiritual life. I feel like there was just this constant mismatch between you're walking into these beautiful churches and like these sites that are really important to us. And there's all this expectation and also this like feeling of like, they feel a little bit like museums and they feel a little empty. And so I was in this, like in my own life, a pretty big period of desolation while I was here. So I was anxious to be back here both because we were covering like this important Vatican event, and I think when you do that sometimes it's easy to lose sight of your own sense of Catholicity, but also because this was a really difficult place for me to pray when I used to live here. So I was delighted to find such a warm and welcoming community. And, and we were told
2: about it almost right away, yeah, right? Like our friends who are Vatican journalists, people who we know here in Rome, almost immediately said, hey, for a great English mass and a great you know, English-speaking community, go to Caravita.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Ashley, what were your impressions when you walked in?
0: Well, first was like, darn, Zach might be (laughs) right. impossible. <laughs> <laughs> you often talk about the need to close down parishes. And or just of, move beyond move, the idea yeah, of parishes. Yeah, and dream up something new for how people can come together to receive the sacraments. And I've always had trouble imagining what that could actually look like in practice. And I think this was actually a really good example of that. This is a group of like-minded people uh, who know each other and have, you know, roped a, some Jesuits into <laughs> giving them the sacraments. So when I walked It was this feeling of like being a stranger and feeling completely welcome immediately, which is not my normal experience going to a new church or even going to my normal church. So, you know, after mass, they invited everyone to stick around for some Prosecco. and Which I, works
2: a lot better than orange juice and coffee, by the agreed. way. <laughs> the <laughs> the it? brunch mass. yeah, it felt perfectly
0: <laughs> But I can say like I've been invited to, you know, stick around at the back of the church for coffee or drinks so many times in my life. And it's never been something I've really wanted to do. It's like, oh, this is going to be awkward going small talk but here it was like immediately oh this is wonderful we're talking to some old faces but some new people too
2: yeah there was obviously a great spirit amongst the group there and it was also clear that it was fuller than it usually is right because like this particular sunday mass had brought people like us to rome yeah right so three
0: people like <laughs> added significantly to a very small congregation right
2: so yeah the camaraderie and the spirit among them was great i actually noticed how Kind of run down. The church was. Didn't they tell us that it, like, it was like a storage? It was room. a storage room or something up until a few years ago. Even yeah. and, mm-hmm. and uh, it was beautiful in it, some it, ways. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. So it's it has all these relative, like beautiful right? frescoes, yeah. yeah.
1: and it's like perfectly like Renaissance and Baroque, and was just a storage room because those come a dime a dozen, I yeah. guess. Here, <laughs> so a little bit kind of run down,
2: but like beautiful, beautiful in the way that there was still a great spirit amongst the people there. And the thing that really hit me was that when you're in a community like that, everybody participates in the liturgy. And it just makes all the difference. Like we talk all the time in theory about, you know, full and active participation in the liturgy, which came out at Vatican II. But if we're like really honest, I'm sure this is people's experience who listen to the podcast. People are like responding less and less, I find. And that's really problematic because it ends up just kind of killing the spirit and the atmosphere of a liturgy, of a mass. And so when everybody's singing, it kind of invites you to sing along, too. Like, you're less self-conscious about mm-hmm. your terrible voice. <laughs> and it just makes the liturgy come alive. And, like, that allows the spirit to work. Like, that's the type of thing that the church and the community is supposed to be doing, a community of faith, a community of believers. So I just found it a very enriching experience. And it was great to
1: hear a homily in English. Yeah, so true. Run down, but beautiful. I think that's what my wife texted me when she said, happy anniversary. Like, <laughs> you're run down and beautiful. And I still up. Like, wait, no, 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 that wasn't it. That was... I thought
0: you were going to say, it sounds like the church. Oh.
1: <laughs> no.
0: It <laughs> really zacked there. <laughs>
1: um,
2: it works on so many levels.
0: <laughs> it was not
1: something, this mass and this experience was not something I was expecting coming to Rome. So I'm just grateful for that this week. So listeners, I don't know if you've had an experience like this where maybe you were either anxious about something or visiting something outside of your norm. And you were just like wonderfully delighted by the time you had there. Maybe in a religious space, but maybe not. So, And
2: if not, go to your parish this weekend and belt it out. Yeah. Belt out the sing responses. Really, sing really loud.
1: Sing loudly. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Get us out of here, Ashley.
0: Okay. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our sound engineer this month is Frank Tucson faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded this month in the eternal city of Rome. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you soon.